Welcome, everybody, once again to Yukon 360. It's our 13th episode, lucky 13, 13 installments of the only podcast in the world that brings you the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. We are coming to you from the Benton Museum of Art on the Stores campus. It's something of a home away from home for us, thanks to everyone at the Benton. Joining me, as always, Julie Bartuka. Hello. Ken Best. Good afternoon. And my name is Tom Breen. I am your facilitator of sorts. And we have a great show for you, as we always do. We have a lot of news. We have some fun people to hear from. And we're going to take a trip back to the mid-1980s, Tom's <laughs> History Corner. Uh, but before we do that, why don't we jump into some husky headlines and find out what's happening on campus, and in fact, university-wide. Julie, what's hey, going on? First, I just want to take a second out of our planned show to dedicate this episode to my step-grandfather, Rick Beckius, who passed away last week. He was a huge, huge, huge UConn fan, had season tickets for many, many years to women's and men's basketball and football, big supporter, donor, and he was also a big fan of UConn 360. Um, he and my Grammy Marianne would listen to every episode around their little Google speaker. Um, Grammy's still out there listening, and they told all their friends about it, many UConn fans among them, so just want to dedicate this to him, um, miss him very much. So in some very exciting medical news, Dr. David Weinstein at UConn Health recently administered to a real human patient the first investigational gene therapy for glycogen storage disease, which is also known as GSD. GSD is a rare genetic disorder which impacts the storage and release of sugar in the body, and right now it's only controlled by patients drinking a cornstarch mixture every couple hours, which they're basically tied to this mixture or else they could have a seizure or potentially die from it. Dr. Weinstein is the world's premier GSD doctor and brought his program to UConn Health and Connecticut Children's Medical Center from Florida last year. His gene therapy that he's been working on for decades basically delivers a new copy of this defective gene to the patient's liver. And in this clinical trial, they're closely monitoring the first patient to ensure the safety of the therapy. It's proven safe, effective, and long-lasting in animal models. And you can read more about it in the archives of UConn Magazine, magazine.uconn.edu, summer 2017 issue. Very nice. Ken, what's happening in your world? We have more science, technology. Science, all right. This is a collaboration between the Yukon scientists and those at the United Technologies Research Center. They're using advanced additive manufacturing technology, that's 3D printing to the rest of us, to create smart machine components that alert users when they are damaged or worn. Scientists and researchers have used a uh, variety of technology to also create polymer-bonded magnets with intricate geometries and arbitrary shapes opening up new possibilities for manufacturing and product design, meaning that the polymers, which are made up of molecules strung together to form long chains, and depending on the molecules, it's either hard, hard soft, flexible uh, surfaces. The use of this advanced form of 3D printing is called direct write technology, and that's right like you, when you use a pen or a pencil. Unlike conventional 3D printing, which uses lasers to uh, fuse layers of fine metal powder into a solid object, direct right technology uses semi-solid metal ink that comes out of a nozzle. It looks like toothpaste being squeezed from a tube. It allows the, the uh, scientists to create fine lines of conductive silver filament that can be embedded into 3D printed components while they're being made. These are so fine that they're only 15 microns wide, uh, up to 50 microns apart. That's thin. Average human here is about 100 microns. And this allows uh, them to detect very minute damage. So an example would be if these are embedded into the ceramic coating of a jet engine turbo blade fan. Those blades are subjected to tremendous physical forces and heat. A microscopic crack 
in the coating uh, could be catastrophic to the blade's performance, but it, you couldn't see it with your eye. Uh, with these sensors, uh, mechanics would be alerted to any blade damage so they could be addressed. So this is pretty cool stuff that's, that's going on. There's a big story about this that uh, our colleague Colin Poitras put on UConn today. And it gets in much more detail than we can take on the uh, podcast today. The future is truly now. (laughs) And you know what? Uh, The future of giving at the university looks bright. Uh, My news this week is our friends at the UConn Foundation have announced that in fiscal year 2018, they raised $82.4 million. Just in case you guys were wondering, Tom did do the Dr. Evil. uh, I did. Tinky to his mouth when he said million dollars. In uh, in donations and commitments, that's the largest in their 54-year history. And it's a 17% increase over 2017. Now, those contributions and commitments came from 22,260 people, most of whom gave less than $1,000. Every amount helps. I was among that 22,260. Make it three. Te- see? Three for three. Uh, and in, also in fiscal year 2018, the foundation uh, disbursed. $25 million in support of the university, including $11 million for programs and facilities, $9 million for scholarships, and $5 million for faculty support. So the money goes to good uses, and uh, you'll probably be hearing more from us about the foundation and, and ways you can help. But I also want to uh, quickly note on a non-financial note, on August 1st, the Board of Trustees voted to approve the creation of two new academic programs that are particularly interesting, uh, a bachelor's degree in Arabic and Islamic civilizations and a graduate certificate in literary translation. The bachelor's program will give students a working knowledge of uh, the Arabic language and its three main variants, which, as you know, are MSA, classical and colloquial, as well as providing courses on classical Islamic civilization and the contemporary Arab world. And the graduate certificate is going to address a growing need both here at home and around the world for skilled translators who are needed in the public sector and the private sector. And it also uh, offers the possibility of a new tool in the toolkit of students who may be studying business or law or diplomacy or information technology. And if you want to know even more about the art of literary translation here at UConn, the best possible thing you can do (laughs) is go and listen to episode nine of this very podcast where our own Julie Bartuka interviews Peter Constantine, yes. the director of the literary translation program here. Super impressive guy. Uh, a lot of news this week, a lot going on. So why don't we jump headlong, we'll barrel headlong into our features. Julie, tell us what you have. So some years ago here at UConn, some unknown person or people put up a couple wooden swings on a tree overlooking Mirror Lake. And Betsy Krakow, who's director of counseling and mental health services here, thought it'd be a good place to try something that she'd seen on a CBS News segment. A journal where anyone who visited the spot could write down their thoughts, feelings, reflections, uh, jokes, whatever they want. So in the past three years, what's known as the Swing Journal around here has taken on a life of its own and become a real rite of passage for UConn students and visitors alike. And it's kind of a time capsule in the life of the college. So check it out. I was killing time on the swing before a very scary meeting. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw a mailbox. It feels like a message from another realm, this journal cheering me on. Maybe I can do this and make a difference. Maybe we all can. Sign Z, 21318. I'm Betsy Krakow. I'm the Director of Counseling and Mental Health Services at UConn. What is the Swing Journal? So the Swing Journal is a journal (laughs) that's uh, located in a mailbox by a tree near Mirror Lake. And conceptually, basically, I had seen this special on CBS News that um, was about a journal that was placed along a beach in North Carolina called the Kindred Spirits Journal. 
and we were looking for ways for students to connect or to feel safe to share what's going on with them so they don't feel so alone. And I thought we should do that at UConn. Bucket list, check. It's crazy to think how many people have sat on this swing and held this same little notebook. Sometimes I've come to this tree when I'm on top of the world and feel invincible. And other times I've come here in my saddest moments. Right now, I'm on top of the world. But if you aren't, that's okay. Next time you come to this tree, maybe you will be. And if not, just remember how many people have sat on the swing and held this little notebook. You are not alone. The swings have been there on and off for, I don't know what the actual history prior to when we sort of picked it up, but they were there, then they fell down and laid on the ground for a month. So finally I picked them up and went um, to my dad, who's a woodworker, and said, could you make me two swings? And then, oh. you know, my husband and I came here at like 6 a.m. on a Sunday morning so we wouldn't get caught. But of course now, <laughs> now we're totally outed like with his big little giant ladder trying to hang these swings up. And uh, we did okay. We did. We got them up. And then, you know, as it evolved, I finally called Physical Plant and said, we need help here. We've kept replenishing the journals and started a Facebook page where we post what people write and it really is very basic it just says you know share your thoughts and feelings and you can go to the Facebook page and and you basically get this overarching you know montage for lack of a better word of what community members and students are thinking about um, it's really like I never fail to open it up and find something in it that just essentially takes my breath away and I know that sounds corny but I've never been closer to the sky swinging under a tree made of stars. Makes me feel like a part of forever. What's the goal of it? What do you hope comes from it? I mean, the goal, is, I really think, is for people to have a place for some quiet time and reflection, first of all. And the fact that it's in nature in such a beautiful setting is not unintentional. We've had other schools call us, and we send them pictures, and they're like, we don't have a place that beautiful to put the swing. I think it's important that it's scenic right. like that. Right. And then the second one, I think, is as people flip through it and read what other people have written, they can think, like, yeah, I've had that experience, or I've I've had that feeling or that thought, or I've had my heart broken, or, you know, I've been silly that way. And, and so I think that sense of universal experience is, is huge. You know, in, in one sense, it's almost more uh, painful in some ways to feel lonely when you're surrounded by 23,000 people. And when there's that expectation of the perfect college experience, you know, there's so much buildup right. to college, right? And it looks like everyone's having the time of their life. And I think it looks that way even more so now with Facebook. Because people don't tend to post on Facebook. I don't know what the difference is. The things that they write in the journal are not the things that are getting curated onto Facebook or Instagram or any of that. I think it's an invitation really to say, if you struggle, you're, you're not alone. 7-7-18. My ex-boyfriend died today to the brutal disease of addiction. I never stopped loving or caring about him. I prayed for his recovery every day. He worked a strong program and was building a sober life for himself. He is gone too soon. The world has lost a beautiful soul. On this swing, I sit and I cherish that I have lived another day, that I'm here to enjoy the perfect weather and the sounds of nature around me, the breeze in my hair as I swing. You are so loved. Rest in peace. So the student writes, a friend died, he was a past boyfriend of hers, and I had to tell her, we sat in the car, both stunned, quote, have you been to the swings? 
No, she replied, let's go to the swings. And here we are, feeling our feelings in flight on the swings. Not too bad for a couple of women in recovery. Numbing used to be the only way through pain. I just got missed by a butterfly. Maybe I'll take that as a sign. Goodbye, friend. It's funny because we didn't prompt it to say, like, write about your struggles, but that's what people wrote Mm -hmm. about. So there's something about the pen to paper piece of it. Because we're, I mean, we're presenting a lot lately about how social media is not decreasing isolation, but rather increasing Mm -hmm. it. You know, in some ways, someone could make the argument that the Swing Journal is just another version of social media. And I think people know, like, instinctively, when you journal, you write about your innermost real thoughts, as opposed to when you log on social media. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So, I mean, so we're trying to, um, in, in any number of ways, address loneliness as as a real sort of kernel of bigger mental health issues, mm-hmm. um, creating a community of listeners, creating more connections, whether that's in classrooms, in the journal, in our therapy sessions. You are still growing on the days when you feel empty, something I need to remind myself. There have been things that people have written when they're feeling despairing that other people write back to them with encouragement. Mm -hmm. I mean, everything from I have nowhere to go on Thanksgiving, like one of my favorite ones was, you know, I'm lonely, it's Thanksgiving break, I don't have anywhere to go, and someone wrote back, you know, call me, you can come to my house, and wrote their phone number That's so awesome. (laughs) So I think think the student was an international student, they had indicated that. I love it when people are just lighthearted, you know, that you can tell that they're there and they just really appreciate the setting a lot. You know, there's a lot of commentary about the ducks the ducks, the squirrels. Dear world, I just want to say today is a beautiful day and also never think twice before putting that second chocolate chip pancake on your plate. Life is too damn short for that. Do not eat the blueberry ice cream at Whitney. It is not worth it. Signed, a friend. Hello, people reading this. Today is January 21st, 2018, and let me tell you, I have never lived a day more effortlessly beautiful than today. This world is a good place to be. I hope you laugh at something ridiculous and smile real hard today. There are other themes that are really important. Definitely the heartbreak theme um, is huge. So, well, the finding love and losing love, Mm -hmm. I guess I would put it that way. So uh, I'm here with my best friend and now they've become my romantic interest is always in there. And the, uh, you know, how am I going to deal with this isn't working out? Mm -hmm. And those are just really important to read and heartbreaking and you know bring back memories for everyone I exactly think, ever had their heart broken basically he was telling me how much he appreciates us as he sat on the swing that read gratitude december 14th 12:56 a.m and there's a lot of alumni that come back um, and talk about they met their significant other their spouse here they have children that are coming back for orientation this is orientation season so you can see the seasons of a college life absolutely um the way people write about graduation graduation we always get tons of entries advice enjoy yourself do what you love then on your last day of your undergrad take a walk through campus look around take it in understand that you should be proud of yourself for your accomplishments. Don't let anybody convince you that getting a degree is not a big deal. You are worth it. You matter and you have reasons to be proud of yourself. Students today, Huskies forever. I love you all.
Well, that was great. Thank you, Julie. Thanks, Tom. Um, you can also read more about it. Our colleague Stephanie Reitz wrote a great story in the magazine's Spring 18 issue. So if you go to magazine.yukon.edu and click Archive Spring 2018, it's there. You know, writing in a journal is a great way to express your thoughts and feelings and emotions. Another great way to do that is through the medium of music. And uh, that brings us to Ken Best. Is <laughs> once again, so smooth, natural. smooth mm-hmm. transition. This I've, guy ought to be on the radio. Like sometime. butter. I have, a, I have a master's degree in segues. <laughs> uh, this week, uh, UConn composer Kenneth Fuchs will release his fifth album of original compositions recorded by the London Symphony Orchestra, one of the great orchestras in the world. The title track is Spiritualist Concerto for Piano and Orchestra, performed by pianist Jeffrey Vigel, and it's a major release for this fall from the Naxos label, which is the world's leading classical music label. The recording also includes Rush, a concerto for alto saxophone and orchestra, performed by Timothy McAllister, Poems of Life, a work based on the poems of Judith G. Wolfe, sung by countertenor Aria Nussbaum Cohn, and Glacier, a concerto for electric guitar and orchestra performed by DJ Spar. Now, historically, there are very few works for guitar and orchestra, uh, let alone electric guitar and orchestra. So uh, Professor Fuchs uh, had some challenges in composing this work. Most importantly, this is the third time that he's recorded with the London Symphony Orchestra at Abbey Road Studios in London, which opened in 1931. And I think most people know that's where the Beatles recorded. But it was also where many of the 20th century's most celebrated other musicians recorded, like Vladimir Horowitz, cellist Pablo Casals, Glenn Miller, the band leader, and Tony Bennett recorded with Amy Winehouse there. Professor Fuchs also collaborated with his longtime friend, the renowned conductor, Grammy Award-winning Joanne Folletta, who led the symphony orchestra for the fifth time, as I said before. And my first question to him was about the experience of recording in such a celebrated place. It never grows old. It's very special each time. I recorded my first two LSO discs actually at a fantastic venue called LSO St. Luke's, which is the London Symphony Orchestra's educational and recording facility. When we went to Abbey Road for my third and then fourth and fifth discs, it was a very special moment. It always feels like the first time. It To walk up those stairs and through the double doors and, and into the reception area to realize that so many artists of all styles of music have recorded at that studio and then to walk down the halls and see the hundreds of pictures of the superstars in pop, rock, jazz, and classical music who have have made recordings there is thrilling. It's inspiring, intimidating in the best sense. It makes you want to do your best when you're there. And I'm very grateful that we've had three opportunities to do so. It's also the fifth partnership with your good friend and colleague, Joanne Folletta, one of the leading conductors in the United States, and in fact, around the world. She's conducted all over the world. That's right. What is it like working with someone who knows you so well and can get the thought that you've got out into the orchestra? Every composer needs a champion. Joanne and I, we go fairly far back. We were classmates together at at Juilliard, and um, for close to 35 years, we've been incredibly connected through music. I'm grateful for her friendship. And she, uh, yes, she does understand my music. She gave the premiere performance of a work of mine called Out of the Dark, which we then included on my first LSO disc at the Juilliard Focus Festival in January 1985. And, and 
Ever since then, it's been a wonderful journey in music with her through performances and recording. She is a classical guitarist by training before yes, she, she became a conductor. And that's Remarkable kind guitarist. of different for uh, a conductor. Uh, you were a flautist, I guess yes. is, is the correct yes. terminology. Was my principal instrument. Yeah. was your principal instrument. But now you are writing in this new uh, recording for electric guitar and saxophone, which are two completely different <laughs> instruments. Uh, what Pretty was the, unusual stuff. What was the challenge there? <laughs> Where do I begin? Oh, boy. In September of 2014, I received out of the blue the kind of email that every composer wishes to have. It was from Matthew Savory, the music director of the Bozeman Symphony Orchestra, asking if I would accept a commission to compose a work for his orchestra. They were about to celebrate his 20th anniversary as music director of the orchestra. And of course, I was thrilled and, and very touched that he would think of me for such an important occasion, especially for him. And he asked me if I would be interested in considering the idea of composing for electric guitar. I love the electric guitar. I love jazz. I, I was exposed to a lot of jazz, uh, particularly in my undergraduate years at the University of Miami School of Music. But uh, I'd never composed for it. And I, I knew, of course, that it was and is a, a complicated instrument to, to really understand idiomatically if you, if you don't play it. I said yes, but I'm going to write a piece that I'm going to find note by note in my own voice. I'm not going to write a gimmicky concerto for electric guitar where one movement is Jimi Hendrix and the next movement is the Allman Brothers. I, I just couldn't bring myself to do anything like that. It took me about a year, more than a year, actually 13 months to compose the first draft of the piece. It's 22 minutes in five movements for electric guitar and big symphony orchestra. The challenge was that because there are so many possibilities in the sounds that are available on the electric guitar, I wasn't exactly sure how the solo part was going to sound. Now, that's a little disconcerting when you're uh, setting sail on a 20-plus minute concerto. But nonetheless, I worked slowly and I imagined the sounds that I thought I wanted. And when I finished the first draft of the piece, we found our perfect soloist in our backyard, my backyard, Doug Mayer, wonderful guitarist and faculty member at the Yukon Department of Music. Doug came to my house a couple of weeks in a row and brought two or three different guitars and an amp and his pedals and all sorts of possibilities for sounds. And, and we would shut that solo part phrase by phrase. He would play something. I'd say, well, here's the sound I'm looking for. How do, how do I notate that? Or I want to have some uh, chords here with harmonics. How can I notate that? And we went, we went back and forth like that for about a month. Many instruments have associations with them. And, and when you try and write, uh, at least in the symphonic world, a, a straight-ahead piece with that instrument, but not deploying the kind of shtick and sounds that everybody knows to break away from that people can't you know come to perhaps with pre you know expectations uh already in their minds of oh this is what this piece is going to sound like and when they hear something like this which is completely out of the box uh they're surprised the soloists who've played it doug mayer who who gave the premiere with the bozeman symphony and also dj spar who recorded it with the lso there aren't that many electric guitarists out there who have the chops to take care of all the classical stuff that's in this piece. I mean, the scales, the arpeggios, the up and down, the really technical stuff, and also 
all of the coloristic bombast of rock and jazz, which is in, in here too. In a way, I didn't realize what I was creating. I didn't realize I was creating something that would be so difficult to find the right soloist for. And you know, classically trained musicians, yes, uh, guitarists like uh, Joanne Folletta right. and, and others who are students of the instrument in a formal way. Guitarists, you pick it up, you figure it out, you listen to it. Hendrix, I don't think, ever took a lesson. Most guitarists right. have not. They figure it out. They can hear something and replicate it. And once they get the scale down and they know what key they're in, they're okay, but you can't bring him in as a studio session musician. You mentioned that Joanne Folletta is, is a guitarist, a classical guitarist, and, and she's really a, quite a brilliant one and still performs and records. But uh, I don't know of another conductor, symphony orchestra conductor, whose instrument is classical guitar. And, of course, she was so wonderful to be in the studio with on this piece because she understands the guitar, even though this is an electric guitar, and was very sensitive to the nuance of the piece. Helen Frankenthaler is... Uh, an important influence on some of your thinking and your creativity. Absolutely. Uh, as, as, of course, the abstract artist. How did that come about? It's an important one in my creative life. When I was a graduate student at Juilliard in the 1980s, I was lucky enough to be at the school for nine years, actually, from 1979 to uh, 1988. And, um, of course, I, I was still during this time, I was an aspiring composer, and I was I was trying to find a musical voice and and absorb so many different types of of music and understand them and and understand how a particular style of music might be relevant to me in in terms of the kind of music that I eventually wanted to compose and in finding a voice. And in December of 1983, I happened to see on New York Public Television a television program called Helen Frankenthaler Toward a New Climate. And it was a half-hour program about her work, about her, her creative vision, her, her way of approaching abstract expressionist painting. And I was so bowled over by the beauty of the paintings, the, the, the lush color, the, the abstract gestures and, and design of, of the pictures, and perhaps most important, her creative attitude, a rather freewheeling creative attitude. She says in the program, as an artist, you have to learn it all and then throw it out. And I was intrigued by that because what she meant was, of course, you, you acquire technique, you study the repertoire of your medium, you study the people who came before you, but there's a, there comes a time where you put all of that aside and, and you go forward with your own instinct, your own intuition, your own emotion. And when I understood that, that is when I began to see a pathway forward, how I might think through all of the influences that I was experiencing as a grad student at Juilliard. So I wrote Helen a letter. Uh, she wrote me back immediately. I was so impressed that someone so famous and someone whom I admired so much would actually write write to me. Of course, I was uh, a student. I, was, I wasn't known at all. And she said, and more to the point, I have an opening of a new show of paintings at the Andre Emmerich Gallery at the end of the month. Why don't you stop by? And I did. And we met there, and we became fast friends. And that's really how it started. And my, my uh, serious study of her work to try and understand what her creative aesthetic was and, and how I could translate it to my own musical vision.
that was very nice. Uh, and you know, speaking of music, here comes the story of the hurric. I actually probably shouldn't do that. <laughs> iTunes might. We don't have the rights to that, that song. That might be. We might get sued You're for talking some royalties about, there. Uh, Ruben Carter. I'm talking about a literal hurricane, and uh, my singing voice has been compared to a lark in the morning. Um, <laughs> we're in hurricane season now, and so uh, I got interested in what happened at UConn the last time a major hurricane blew through town. I'm not talking about uh, Sandy, which was, if you'll recall, a superstorm, which m- may be a fabricated term come up by the big meteorology Ugh. lobby. I don't know, but... I'm thinking of Hurricane Gloria. And Gloria mm-hmm. is another song that we don't have the rights to. So I wanted to find out how the university weathered Hurricane Gloria. So why don't we, we set our time machine for Friday, September 27th, 1985. Sounds good. Remember where you were that day, if in fact you were alive. I wasn't. Okay. Wow. <laughs> I was evacuated at another location in Connecticut that day. <laughs> well, that day's edition of the Daily Campus was all hurricane all the time uh, with an AP story dateline out of Manteo, North Carolina. Incidentally... I once covered a hurricane for the Associated Press from Manteo, North Carolina. I know how much people love those personal tidbits. (laughs) It also had local bylines about campus preparation. So it's interesting. uh, The campus was sort of evacuated. On Thursday, they canceled classes, and they told all the students, if you can go home, go home. But the Daily Campus staff stayed on to produce a hurricane edition of the newspaper. This was what day of the week? Friday. Didn't people go home a lot on weekends back then? Well, they had classes. I mean, they were going home Thursday night. Right, right, right. Gotcha. They also designated uh, Jorgensen Auditorium, the Alumni Center, and the old ROTC building as evacuation sites in case they had to evacuate anybody. Many students did uh, leave campus. However, many did not. Uh, I found one story that quoted a local grocery store owner saying he sold 200 cases of beer <laughs> on Thursday. Some things never change. Some things never change. I, uh, I'm in, I don't want to say exactly what I do because I don't want to get people mad at me. I'm involved somewhat in the process of when classes are canceled because of bad weather. I don't make a decision. I want to be very clear about that. <laughs> <laughs> I communicate the decision. But it was interesting to me to see how they did this in 1985 because we do it with text message and email. Yeah. Those were not tools available. Phone trees back then. It's so it was, uh, there were phone trees. It was broadcast uh, on radio and TV by our friends in the media. And also uh, Yukon police went from dorm to dorm wow. with, with posted notices, huh. putting them up, letting people know that uh, they should evacuate or prepare for a storm. And inter- this was the first time since 1978 that classes were canceled because of weather. Hmm. They cl- canceled in 1978 because of a massive blizzard that shut the state down. Like the roads were closed. Hold on. Like we closed how many times this year? Things have changed. <laughs> oh my God. Cancellation That's policy crazy. has waxed and waned over the years. Crazy. And this, this was a period where they didn't cancel class because Super of snow. Super waned. So when the the storm actually uh, hit campus, uh, it knocked out power and water on campus, but it didn't do much in the way of structural damage. One uh, interesting note is uh, the generator. So, you know, we have animals. We have a lot of animals because we're an ag school. And in the event of bad weather, the animals still have to be taken care of. Like we don't just run, (laughs) leave the animals (laughs) to fend for themselves. So they had had procured a generator to operate the electric milking machines for our herd of cows. And the generator failed. They couldn't get a new one because it was Friday in the day of a hurricane. There were no like massive generators just lying around. So uh, Sam Shepherdson, who is identified in the story by the wonderful title Herdsman, he enlisted uh, agriculture majors who were still on campus to milk the cows by hand. So 25 students uh, took five and a half hours to do a job that normally takes less than two. Wow. And then this is the best part. All the milk they collected had to be thrown away immediately because oh. the coolers were there was no electricity. What a bummer. So they had to milk the cows, but they also had to just 
get rid of those everything students deserve a medal and i want all students today to realize everything could be way worse everything could be way worse but for the most part it seems like the hurricane was something of a holiday on campus students played volleyball and football during the storm in between the residence halls that we used to call the jungle and frats but we don't call them that anymore Just students do student things mm-hmm. yes uh, there were students who made capes out of bedsheet and tried to fly <laughs> in the hurricane pass through. They oh, probably were not physics or engineering majors. Watching that Superman show with the, yeah. guys, the, the flat stomach and the cape waving. Any yeah, exactly. injuries? Uh, just minor, minor injuries. Uh, <laughs> there were lots of people who taped up their windows. People used to do that for hurricanes. I don't see that when hurricanes come through. It probably doesn't do anything. But they would tape like messages like, get lost, Gloria, <laughs> that kind of thing. <laughs> So, you know, if you have fond Hurricane Gloria memories from campus, uh, why don't you compress them into tweet form and fling them at us? We are at UConn Podcast on Twitter.com. Let us know if you played football or volleyball in 80 mile an hour winds. Uh, and if you want to cuss me direct, I'm at TJ Breen on Twitter. <laughs> Julie, how can people single you out for condemnation and what do you want them to know? I want them to know that cuss me direct is nothing I've ever heard out of anyone else's mouth but yours. <laughs> um, I'm at Julie Bartuka on Twitter at UConn Podcast. Listen to us. Go to healthjournal.uconn.edu and read about UConn Health Research. And have a good time. If you don't subscribe to this podcast and you're listening to it, you're, you're missing out. Subscribe to the podcast. Rate and review. We have five stars, I believe. Right nice. Yeah. Ken? What about you? Is there anything you want the good people of listener land? Well, for, for, the, the for, for the rest of the month, at least, uh, 4.30 to 7 p.m. on Mondays at 91.7 WHUS, UConn Sound Alternative, streaming online at whus.org. That's right. As this comes to you, dear listeners, there's barely two weeks left before the start of the semester. Get Ken while you still can. How time flies. Thanks for listening, everyone. See you in a fortnight. Bounce, 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 bounce. That's how it sounds. Thank you.